is Craig LaHuyer. You've taught me, you've heard him before, and you're, I'm sure we're given the opportunity that you will have a chance to hear him again on this show. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Daryl. It's uh, always just one of the mo- most favorite parts of my season when we get to talk gardening. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, and I appreciate your taking the time out of your schedule because I know your schedule has been hectic to to a, a, an extreme degree. You've been <laughs> filming for um, you've been filming with with Joe Lample for Growing a Greener World, and you were telling me about right before we went on the air. You were telling me about another project you've got for Seed Savers. Tell our tell our listeners about that. I think they might be intrigued. Yeah, well, there's a couple of um, young men, one's from Boston, one's from Durham, and they were out at Seed Savers last year, uh, and we met, and they're actually doing a film project where they're making the rounds of the country, essentially, and talking to people who have large seed collections, uh, taking some film of them working in their garden, but, but the whole focus of it is to reinforce the relevance of not only saving seed, but the stories, the beauty, and the wonder of the stories that go with it. Uh, Many of these seeds were sent to us at a time where people actually, get this, sat down with a pen and paper, wrote letters, (laughs) used penmanship, stuck stamps on them, mailed them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so I got to read, uh, you know, the Mexico midget letter from Barney Lehman and the Cherokee purple letter from J.D. Green and about a half a dozen others, and... uh, I think both the Growing or Greener World episode, of which there's maybe the most important part remaining, filming the, the ripe tomatoes and the consumption and such that will happen later this summer. And uh, I think that the two gentlemen are only partly through their filming. Uh, I know they've talked to Ira Wallace up at Southern Exposure and uh, Will Bonzel up in Maine, and they'll be talking to many other people as well. So uh, I guess next year, uh, when, I least expects it, when I least expect it, there will be... Um, an episode of this or that that's out there. So, uh, And I'm sure it will catch me by surprise because, as you know, I'm pretty much always busy with dirty hands and sweating in the garden and uh, responding to all of the requests for help that my plants are screaming at me all summer long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I certainly understand that. And I know how, how busy you can get, too, just you know, just being a gardener, let alone all these other things that are coming up. Now, the seed savers thing, when is that? Do they have any kind of finish date? And is that going to be on television, or is it going to be you, you buy it by the film from um, SSE, the Seed Savers Exchange? Well, as, as Sergeant Schultz said, I know nothing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. I, I, all I know is that it's a work in progress and that I'll be in contact, in contact with them as time goes on. But, uh, you know, perhaps if we do this again in a few months or I'll be blogging, once I know um, what is going on, I'll talk about it. But it, in a way, this is kind of an aspect of my personality that people get to see is I'm, I'm much more invested and interested in the journey than I am the destination. So for me, what's going on in the garden now from starting the seed to maintaining the plants. Um, I like it actually even more than picking and harvesting in the end game because the end game means winter's coming, and that's a sad thing for tomato lovers. But a lot of the learning happens right outside on the muggy days with the, sort, with the, you know, the foliage starting to get spots. And uh, so 
I, I think I answered three questions, including <laughs> two you never even asked. But you know me. Um, yeah, once I find out what the, what this will be doing, I'll let people know. But I think it's an important project, and I'm delighted that they're doing it. And I'll be very, very interested with um, the finished result. So um, thanks for asking, and we'll we'll see where we get to. I'll start getting more information soon, I'm sure. Now, you also um, just had an honor. Actually, I guess they, they wrote it um, last year for Eating Well magazine. Tell me about it. Yeah, they um, when Epic Tomatoes came out, uh, gosh, it was a year and a half ago, um, and I, I'm still experiencing this today where I wake up in the morning and, you know, make the coffee away at breakfast, then I go on email, and I never know what little tidbit's going to arise, and it could be the invitation to a tomato dinner or a request for an interview, but it's all, it's all fun, and I'm, I just have so much gratitude for, for all of it. Um, but Eating Well magazine wanted to do a spot on tomatoes for their summer issue, and they sent a, just a really nice fellow who came and photographed me on a hot, humid day all, all day out in the garden doing my thing, and then the food editor for the Raleigh News and Observer was tapped to write the article, and again... I lost track of it, and I started getting some emails and tweets last week saying, oh, nice article. And I'm like, what do you mean? And then um, I realized, oh, the eating well thing must have come out. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's in there. It's on the newsstand. Um, I've looked for it online, but with a lot of magazines that are um, subscription, I'm not sure that you can get immediate articles online. You have to kind of wait till it's out for a while. But it's, it's on newsstands, and, um, you know, I, I – I'm grateful to Andrea, the food editor of the News and Observer, for writing a nice article. I actually haven't read it because I don't do well with that, but I had Sue read it, and she said it was okay. I'm just, um, I'm just not the comfortable person listening to myself, reading about myself, or any of that stuff. It's a, I just want it's, it's about gardening. It's about tomatoes, and that's the way I kind of want to keep it. Wow, and you certainly have been doing it with the tomatoes this year. How many tomato plants do you have? Oh, I, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I can't give you an exact amount because what will happen is I'll, I'll, one will go down, I'll make a cutting here. But let's just say I've got somewhere approaching or near 180 tomato plants, 180, <laughs> um, somewhere near 20 eggplant and somewhere near... 40 pepper plants. So as I told Joe, as he was looking at my driveway, and the planted area is 25 by 40 feet. That's 1,000 square feet. And there are 220 plants. And this blew my mind. I did a little quick math. And I said, okay, what if I get an average of 10 pounds of fruit off each one of those 220 plants? Well, that's pretty easy math. That is a ton of produce coming from my driveway in a 40 by 25 foot plot. So why I'm excited about this is beyond tomatoes, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Daryl, all of us who love gardening, I think our overwhelming, overlying goal is getting people to grow. If you've got sun in your yard, if you, you, know, you can use containers, you can use straw bales, but everybody can grow some food they can eat in an exciting variety. All they need is a few hours of sun a day. So Hopefully, my ton out of the driveway will demonstrate to people they don't need a big traditional dug-up dirt space. They can just, yeah, it's lugging a little pot or some pots or some straw bales around. 
but they can have incredible success. And as a benefit, their neighbors will probably think they're, they need to be sent to the funny farm as they walk by the house. <laughs> well, and, and the other benefit, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that I can always give produce away. Mm, Zucchinis yes. maybe not not very much in the past, but but tomatoes and cucumbers people love yes. them and peppers, and I can give I can't do a whole lot of stuff now I'm getting kind of old and and feeble but I can grow food and I can take it to the food bank. Yes, you can. And, and you know what's interesting is in a given neighborhood, you may be succeeding with cucumbers where everyone else is having wilt problems or. You know, somebody somebody will the trade and the barter thing is great, and we've done produce for eggs and produce for bread. And but what I think you mentioned, and it's um, we never quite have enough produce to give away because of disease strikes, and a lot of it is research and one-offs. But with what you did with produce and the food bank, it, we did that with our extra plants at the library. But I think any time a gardener give something to commu- to the community because that's what gardening is really it's it's about sharing stories it's about sharing experiences and, and building a community i think it just makes it makes the area a better place when we get to do those donations don't you think i i think so i really do i think that we're put on this planet to help other people and mm-hmm. that's just one of the ways in which we can do that um and i think that even that is old the older that I get, the more I enjoy it. You know, when you're yeah. younger, you're working full-time, you're, you know, trying to juggle so many things, and then you get back, get to a certain age, and you're retired, and you can do more. You, you can, you know, I'm, my garden certainly isn't the size that it once was, but I'm able to seek out places that can use a lot of, a lot of produce. And Craig, you mentioned that you don't get a lot all the time um, that you can give away, but did you know that most food banks are happy with a half a dozen tomatoes? Oh, absolutely. Or, absolutely. or a cuc- you know, you don't. People, I think, think that for food banks they have to have you know huge gardens and take them a sure. whole bushel full at once. But I remember, and I, I don't know whether I've told this story here before. But a couple of years ago, right after the economic collapse, um, there were there was a, a very small elderly lady um, that I had brought, been bringing cucumbers and things up to our local food bank, and you know there was never very much at any one time. But mm-hmm. about, oh, about a week or so later, um, I saw her go scurrying up to one of the guys that was helping load people's cars, and. I could hear her kind of loud whisper, and he nodded, and she came running over to me and gave me this great big hug. Yes, yes. Because she got a cucumber. It was a fresh cucumber. It wasn't waxed. It wasn't from the store. And, you know, and and she had been a gardener all her life and was now at a point where she couldn't garden. And she'd never accepted any handouts before either. But yes. like a lot of elderly people in 2008, they lost their, you know, their life savings. Sure, sure. So, yes, you know, it, it's, it's always good, I think, to give whatever you can, whenever you can. And you know, of course, your show, um, through 
your podcast and everything you've done in your life regarding you're you're giving information which is another form of donation and we all everybody who gardens learns something we may all learn something slightly different slightly new something surprising and when we go out when we blog it when we talk about it when we share it so i i just think with gardeners we have an infinite number of ways to give back whether it's helping someone grow a garden, giving produce, giving plants, giving seeds, spending time. Um, and, yeah, I, we sound like a mutual admiration society. And that, <laughs> that's not the point. It's, uh, the point is we're doing something, I think, that's not only good for us, good for our minds, good for the environment, but good for all of those who, who we can touch. And then they, are all, and they all do the same and give the same back to us, our fellow gardeners, and um, makes for, I don't know, yeah, the, f- the current and future can seem quite dark sometimes, and I go to the garden to mentally heal from it all, mm-hmm. and it really, really works. Yeah, I think so. We're going to have to take a little break. I can't believe that we've gone through almost 15 minutes already, <laughs> but we have to take a little break right now, but we'll be back right after this. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Craig LaHoulier, author of probably my favorite book of the decade, which is called Epic Tomatoes. And right before the break, we were talking about what information that we share. And, Craig, one of the things that struck me this morning, I learned a tip from one of your readers on Facebook about using a blacklight to find tomato hornworms. Yeah, wasn't that wonderful? I'd never heard of that before. And, and you know, of course, I always, you know, use the old gardeners thing, you know, look for the poop and then look up. Follow the poop. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and, and find out where where they are. And I noticed somebody else put in a picture of a parasitized hornworm, too. Yes, 
Yes, that, that is so kind good. of information sharing. So people know that if they see those little oval white things on the back of a hornworm, that those are the are cocoons for a parasitic wasp. Yes. And that, that caterpillar is already, the hornworm's already finished eating, pretty much. Yep. And he's going to die. But before he dies, the little parasitic wasps can hatch out and become more wasps floating around and, and helping you with your garden. Isn't nature so, amazing, the way it does some of these things? It is amazing. And the more that I learn from other gardeners, um, the more astounded I am. Yeah, any any one of us can only hope to absorb so much, experience so much uh, in our own gardens and in our own reading. And I think, uh, you know, and that is one place. I've, I've, I'm sometimes a critic of social media, Twitter, Facebook, just because some of it can seem either commercial or narcissistic. But, you know, when used as a place to share information and create little discussions like that one that popped up uh, on my Facebook page. Um, we, we all learn together, and then somebody else down the air will say, wow, I, I think I just learned something I'm going to share, and then, then they'll post that. And I think uh, it, make, it, makes we, it makes us realize that sometimes I think there are no true garden pros or experts so much as people that have just done it for longer, but we are all <laughs> on a constant learning curve. And you know, none of us have even, I won't say none of us have all the answers. None of us even have very many of the answers. Um, there are a few. We don't even know the, uh, the questions to ask in a we, lot of cases. We don't, we don't know the questions until we look at our plants and then we, we, the question arises, what the heck is that? <laughs> and, then we mm -hmm. start, and then we start a new journey. Uh, every day something is going on out there that you've probably never seen or you're trying to figure out or you need to address. And, uh, when I think of my days right now, um, it's a, it's a full-time job. I can spend three, four, five hours and go through my daily routine. I have some weekly routines, but, you know, it does repay um, in the long run. Or, or maybe, maybe it won't. It's <laughs> disaster of all kinds strikes, but uh, the journey is still worth doing one way or the other because you will learn. I, I think you're right. And to me, learning is the second best part of life. Or maybe it's the first. Now, I think giving, helping people yes. is, is the first. But it's, it's right up there. And that's what yes. I find fascinating about gardening compared to so many other fields that you could be in because you do keep learning. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a thirst for it every day because you just, it, it is addictive in the sense that, well, it doesn't hit everybody. I'm sure like hobbies, different people will be attracted to it. But if you've got the bug, there's, there's always more plants to grow, flowers to grow, seeds to plant, things to try. And then you start thinking, I need to live till 200, and then I'll only be through mm -hmm. half of what I want to grow. So. Yep, yep. <laughs> well, I, I, we used to tease with my father that, um, that he did, his reading list was too long for him ever to die. And he made right. it just shy of his hundredth birthday. So, so wow. I guess there is something there is something to that. And he was reading right up to the end. Um, now, what other things have you learned to this year from your garden? I know that you okay. and I experiment a lot. And yeah. how are you? For example, how are you dealing, and how are your plants dealing with this heat? So, if I were to. Um 
think about this season, and I actually started something new today in my blog, and I'm, I'm going to start a, um, I'm going to do a tomato story of the week, and I'm going to do a, an update when I do that. I'm going to talk about what things are like out there and what things I'm doing. So we've actually had, if I, we've lived in Raleigh for almost 25 years now. This has been one of the kindest springs in the summer in terms of just enough, not too much rain, just enough, not too much heat, just enough, not too much humidity. However, that's my driveway, and I know there are people very close to me who have had destructive hailstorms. They've had um, straight-line winds with some of the thunderstorms. So, you know, we're, we're, again, it's that thing where I'm learning a lot here, but any one of us will experience a point not only in time, but a point in geography. This is how my garden is doing this year, doing the things to it I am doing. So what happens now, and I've, I've done a lot of thinking about this, the plants are healthy largely. Um, we've got some humidity. There is a lot of fungal spores of both alternaria, which is early blight, and septoria, both cause leaf spots on lower foliage, and it's just out there. So the conditions for the plants to come down with that are starting to hit. So I've been spending time going through the plants and cutting off the lower spotted foliage. One of the things I've really paid attention to is where on the plant the problem is worst, and it's away from the sun. It's the back of the mm -hmm. plant. It's the center of the plant. So places where the wind can't dry the foliage with its breezes, where the sun can't reach to dry the foliage and, and help kill that disease, so growing so what does this indicate that if you don't space your plants enough um, and that disease the the fungus starts taking hold it can spread pretty quickly and it can hit almost overnight now stressed plants tend to show it a little bit more quickly and what stresses plants are really warm days um, in containers when they're not getting the water they need, and all of a sudden they're setting fruit. And this plant is thinking, oh, my gosh, I want to keep growing, but I've got all this fruit to take care of and ripen, and it's hot out, and I'm not getting the water I need. And there's fungal diseases on my foliage. Um, it's, it's kind of like a person when they're weakened and there are germs about, they're a little more prone to catching it. So the best way to keep your plants in as good a health as possible, from what I've seen this year, space them appropriately, bottom water only, pay attention to them, remove that lower foliage when it starts getting spotted, and even getting into thinning some of the interior of the plants of excess foliage to open it up a little bit. Um, so those are some of the things I've been doing this year, Daryl, to, to slow down the inevitable um, spread upward of the, the two different fungal diseases, septoria and uh, early blight. Yeah. I have a very shady garden, as, as you do, and one of the things that I noticed that is that my tomatoes that are getting the most shade, particularly morning shade, yes. if they're not getting sun early in the day to dry them off, yes. that's when problems happen most. Yes. Um, now, another really great observation that I'm making is I have – plants in containers, and pretty much they're all um, grow bags, five-gallon grow bags. But I also have about 40 dwarfs in straw bales. And 
we've talked in the last episode about straw bales. You know, one of the concerns, one of the concerns being, you need to make sure they don't have persistent herbicides. Uh, so it's all about, you know, being confident of your source. But given that you have that confidence, you have essentially a sterile environment where, you know, it's it's further up from the ground. You've got no soil that the spores can be in. And I have actually seen the healthiest plants in my yard are those 40 dwarf tomato plants. Um, and so I'm starting to really become more fond of that all the time as a uh, growing medium. And the vigor of the plants and the fruit set looks to be quite um, quite impressive. So, uh, you know, again, these are things that you may the first year not take notice of them. But if you've done it for a few years and you start seeing a trend, then you start saying, hmm, I think something's going on here that I need to pay more attention to. That then gets into information sharing. And maybe I'll post something like that on Facebook or show some pictures and discuss it at one of my garden talks or, you know, blog it. But, um, you know, it, I'm getting a lot of emails now, and it's probably people I know, friends, epic tomato readers, and I'm having a blast but it's but um, it's stressful too because people are sending me pictures of their problems and I'm um, I'm doing the tricky tricky active email and picture diagnosis which you know is is kind of literally impossible to get that 100% right but at least I can point people in the right direction um, but you can tell that the weather we're getting now is bringing on the issues and it's always the June to July turn around the bend where things that look perfect one day um, a few tragedies start appearing shall we say. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, for those people that live up north, like we both have done at times in our past, I know we spend a lot of time talking about tomato diseases, especially here in the south. And the reason for that, the main reason for that is the humidity. We have yeah. a really long growing season, but we have, in our area, we have humidity coming up from the Gulf and humidity coming mm-hmm. off the Atlantic. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you're just between a rock and a hard place. You, you are, and we don't have the winter sub-freezing temperatures to have a positive impact on perhaps reducing some of the populations of the, of the you know, more difficult um, deep soil-borne issues such as a verticillium or a fusarium. Um, so we've we've just got several strikes against us. Uh, when I when I gardened in Pennsylvania for those eight years, I thought gardening was a piece of cake. It's you know I hand dug a virgin plot. I put in tomato plants. I was getting twenty thirty pounds of fruit a plant. I was seeing very little disease. Things would go until frost and. Uh, you know, I moved down to North Carolina. Wow, a nice long growing season. We should be able to really kick some butt down here. And it's the my butt that's getting kicked because, of course, <laughs> right, you know, thunderstorms, humidity, weather, hail, straight line winds, all of the different blights. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, people who garden well in our region, I think, become well, do they become really good gardeners or, they be, or do they become just really good at coping with that? particular set of challenges that's thrown at us down here. Um, and it probably doesn't everybody, matter Everybody, no matter where they garden, has problems. You know, they're, but they're different problems. Um, yes. I know that um, in the Pacific Northwest, they've had for years and years, they had a terrible problem with late blight. 
lake oh, light yes. was pretty much unheard of in our neck of the woods here because it's so hot that it usually doesn't happen. But give us the rainy conditions that we had a few years ago, and it's yep. just late blight city year in and year out. It, it was yep. awful. And I was looking at something the other day that said that we had gotten 79 inches of rain year before last. That's yeah, crazy. And, and, you know, I did a, bit, a little bit of research on, um, on late blight, but we may want to save that until after the break. Yeah. We're going to have to take a little break, but we can talk about diseases all day long. When we come back, I'd also like to talk to you about cleaning your pruners, if you tackle that chore. We'll be right back after this. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is Craig LaHouillier, and we are talking tomatoes and all sorts of other good things like that. So what other kind of projects do you have in the garden besides watching your plants and making sure that you keep them scrupulously clean to try to avoid the, the downfall of the, of the humid weather that we have? Yeah. So, so really my day and my week is um, pretty much assessing watering, uh, feeding pretty regularly, uh, doing the, the foliage clean out. There's a lot of staking and pruning going on. I'm actually uh, working to expand possibilities in the dwarf project by doing a series of crosses, and I think I think I've done somewhere around 40, and I think 10 to 15 have taken already. We can talk a little wow. bit about that. Um, I'm evaluating the most recent dwarf releases. Uh, they're all growing in straw bales, so the last 24 are out, and I am regrowing all of my dwarf hybrids that I created last year for because I didn't get much seed late in the year, and then taking the first look at some of the second generation. And uh, I am also doing something kind of interesting. As I went back with Cherokee chocolate, Cherokee green, Cherokee purple, <clears throat> Brandywine and Lucky Cross, 
those are five of my favorite indeterminate tomatoes. And I won't say that I'm reselecting so much as I'm reexamining growing out uh, different seed lots of them from different points in time to see how um, uniform they've been. And, and I know for a fact that when tomatoes have been out there for a while, if people are seed, seed saving and something happens with a bee getting in there, they, they may not be growing exactly what they think they are. So with Cherokee Purple, I've actually gone back and growing three different plants that are only one generation removed from the seed that Mr. Green sent me. And that will give me a chance to reconfirm what my expectations are for Cherokee Purple, doing the same for the chocolate and green. The oldest seed I get to germinate, which is really cool, was some 16-year-old seed, which is my record so far, and that plant is now nice and healthy out there. So that's kind of the run-through of the projects, and we haven't even talked about my, you know, sweet pepper dehybridization, my eggplant dehybridization, and so there's probably a good 10 things going on out there. So I've got my pad, my handheld recorder, my camera phone, and uh, I'm just puttering around out there. And, it's, you know, maybe gardeners are all the same. I think I'm going to do task A, but then something catches my eye and I'm on task E. Then maybe I'll jump to task C. At the end of the day, I may not have even done what I originally went out there to do. But <laughs> we tried. Oh, that's, that's, that's really common. It's one of those things like you, you run out to the mailbox to check the mail, and yeah. you end up not coming in for an hour because this happened. You, you notice this in the garden or that in the garden, and, and you just keep going around and around. Now, tell me about your old varieties of Cherokee purple. Do you have fruit? close enough to maturity now so that you know um, what the differences might be? Uh, the, well, the good news is all three Cherokee purples, the, both Cherokee greens and all four Cherokee chocolates are showing the fruit shape like I would expect and the plant habit like I would expect. So all that remains probably within two weeks now is to uh, check the right fruit out, confirm the color, and then some of the more uh, attributes are a little more ethereal, which is internal structure. Because how I've, how I've identified some people have something amiss with the Cherokee purple is when I cut them open. And the Cherokee series, whether it's green, purple, or chocolate, have quite a dense interior with small locules, small seed pockets spread throughout whereas a lot of what I'm seeing is happening with some varieties is you cut them open and they've got three or four large seed cells filled with seed. Um, now, it could be that some people are selecting for better fruit shape or a di you know, different attribute, ripening earlier, larger fruit, but they're carrying along some other genes with it that are making it veer away from what Cherokee purple should be. And... Uh, I've, you know, I've gone to the market here and there and bought some that are labeled Cherokee Purple, and I cut them open, and I could bet that they're either black crim or black from Tula. And this is how crazy you can get. When you start eating enough tomatoes, you start memorizing what they're supposed to look like inside when they're sliced in terms of the structure. <laughs> and then you taste them, and then you know that different tomatoes have different flavor attributes. And, you know, some are slightly sweet, some are slightly tart. So... It, it's a fascinating journey to to check it out, but I just feel fortunate that I've got the, the records kept sufficiently. I've got family trees drawn out in PowerPoint, and I can trace all of my seeds back to the or origin. Um, so if, 
what I want to do is if, some, if somebody is, has lost a variety, I want to be able to replace it by going back as far as I can and getting something that I think is, is spot on. So, um, now, you so, mentioned that you've germinated seeds that were 16 years old. I bet uh-huh. you our listeners are going, oh, oh, tell me how, tell me how. Just normal. Uh, it just takes a little longer. I don't do anything special. I just do my close-to-the-surface sow on the heat mats with my draping of the plastic uh, in front of the south window, and uh, I don't treat them in any special way. Uh, and what I find is it does take longer. So I think maybe if my tomatoes are germinating in three to four days, the older seed will germinate in eight to ten days. I've had some take as long as a month. What I do find with older seed is something genetically seems to be going, not genetically, structurally seems to be going amiss because you'll get a lot of plants that will have seed coats that will adhere and won't drop off, or when you get the two cotyledon leaves, there's no growing tip. There's no apical meristem in the middle. All you get is those two leaves, so they're essentially mule tomatoes. They don't, they don't have any way of producing a plant. Um, and that's age-related? I think it's age-related because it only happens with the oldest of seed. And what happens, I guess, is it's just things start, I don't know, things just aren't working. Things aren't what they should be, and I'm not sure. I don't, I'd don't. i have to research the, if there is a true genetic basis for that or whether it's just certain seeds that may have issues are keeping their germination a teeny bit longer. But, again, it's one of those fascinating things you notice that you then think, I have to get to the bottom of that in terms of a scientist and find out why that is. And uh, at this point, anything would just be a supposition on my part. But it, it is an interesting observation to know that the older the seed gets, the more misfires you're, you're going to get after about 10 years old, whereas up to about 10 or 12 years, most of what you get will be just fine. And that is dependent on whether you got fresh seed to begin with. I know a lot of people... Um, think that they mm-hmm. don't know how to, um, they haven't found the secret to saving their seeds or something like that. Right. But what they don't know is that seeds that are sold commercially just have to meet a certain standard of germination yeah. for the year that they were tested. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And I can't tell you how often I've gotten seeds that I, I can tell from, you know, that, that are a fair number of seeds in the package, I can tell just by, as you mentioned, the germination rate, um, that these are not all fresh seed. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's another thing that we found in the year doing our dwarf project is that seeds sent through the mail, you, you would often think that tomato seeds are small, you put them in an envelope, they'll do just fine. We've had a lot of damaged seeds starting to arrive that are not germinating well, so I'm I'm almost exclusively now going to padded envelopes. And it turns out that when they put mail through the rollers, mm-hmm. they actually may be crushing seed. And, uh, you know, that leads to a lot of disappointment when you get some anxiously awaited seed and only, you know, some of them don't look very good and only two out of 20 of them actually germinate. So, um, you know, just these little factors that we don't always consider. We want to share seed with someone and we think we can just wrap it up in a little paper towel and put it in an envelope. But all of a sudden, the processes that the U.S. mail are using now are, are, can be damaging to seeds. So we have to have an extra step in there and think about how we want to get it there safely. Yeah, I think whoever invented the bubble-padded envelope should mm-hmm. get a medal. That They're is the best great. thing for sending plants, sending seeds. Um, I, I'm, I'm just amazed by how 
well that technology works. That works really, really well. And it's, you know, usually only one extra stamp. So, uh, because it really, seeds don't weigh anything. And, uh, yeah, it's, I have a little scale and I'll weigh it. And, oh, two stamps instead of one. But, you know, I'm giving away seeds. I don't care what the postage costs. This is somebody else that's going to share in the delight of something with me and they get to grow it and they'll share it. So, uh, money, money well spent on stamps to send seeds to people. Yeah, and, and like you said, that you know, seeds hardly weigh anything, um, yeah. unless you're shipping bean or corn or something like yeah, that. That's but right. Tomato seeds are, are just so lightweight. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that to people because you you don't want to disappoint somebody that's relying on you to send you seed, and you yeah. don't want to be disappointed, you know, either. And I very often. You know, said I'll be happy to pay the postage difference. Um, please send it in a pad, in a padded envelope, because, That's right. just because of it. And I think the padded envelope gives it a little temperature protection too. Yep. You know, when it's so. ninety degrees outside or ninety five degrees, and the mailman yeah. deposits your package, and it sits there until you get home from work or something like that. That is really hard. Yep, and, and you know what you've said. It, so every time we talk, I think of projects. If you were to get gardeners at different regions of the country and send them, you know, use the same lot of seed that you know has good germination, and send them seed at different times, packaged in different ways, and they germinated them at the other end using a a process that you know they're confident in, then you could start collecting a little bit of data and getting a sense of the effect of temperature, the effect of, po- of um, the treatment in the post office, and you may almost start to get kind of a regional map of where you start having to be more careful. See how kooky I am? I can find a project <laughs> in anything. <there. laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not for nothing that, that pieces, places that sell live plants or seed potatoes, say, have a shipping window. That's because right. if you're shipping in the middle of a hot summer, a lot of your plants are going to be dead. Absolutely, and that's, just the and way that's it really is. disappointing. That is so disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it happens. Um, yep. I know a number of of seed suppliers or plant suppliers now say we're not going to warranty it if we're sending it to you, say in July. And Absolutely. I think that makes perfect sense because a person, yep. you know, orders a plant and you know it comes poached out in the parking lot, out in the parking lot, or something like that. It's not going to go very well. No. Golly. Craig, we we have bounced around on so many subjects, and I have learned again so much more stuff. And now people know what happens with the blind seeds that only have cotyledons. That's pretty yep. cool. But people need to know how they can find your Facebook page or your website, and of course your book. Sure. Well, uh, pretty much NC Tomato Man on Facebook um, and on Twitter and on Instagram on. Um, just com for my website, which has a blog. And, uh, you know, I, I would encourage people to look back because I did a blog a week or two ago where I talk about, it's almost like a suspense novel, how I created one of the new hybrids last year and barely got it to germinate. And the offspring have kind of been around the country and it's growing in my garden again. And it's the starting point for all of these cool little new dwarfs that are coming along. But um, I... I do try to blog weekly just to share what's going on with people. Uh, email me at nctomatoman at gmail.com. And, but um, anybody who sends me an email gets an answer the same day just because I think it's what we talked about. We're teaching, we're coaching, we're sharing, 
we're giving all with each other. And if somebody's going to take the time to ask me a question, I'm going to take the time to give them an answer. And uh, it's so far so good on that. It's been a lot of fun. Anyway, we are out of time. Again, we're just going to have to keep getting you back once every couple of months or something and talk about gardening. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll be back next week with more of America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, You can rest assured, knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today my guest is Craig LaHulier, and we're talking all things tomatoes today. And, Craig, you mentioned before the break that you are pruning the interior of your tomatoes as well as pruning um, or thinning, I guess, the interior to your tomatoes as well as taking off the damaged foliage. And removing diseased foliage is really, really a biggie for whatever part of the country you're in. But now... What do you do when you're removing it? Are you using your hands, or are you using scissors or clippers of some variety, hand pruners? You know, that is a great question. Go ahead. And how do you disinfect, or do you? It's a great question. And so what I'm finding is because my plants, and typically I would advise people to, in between plants, you know, do a dip in dilute rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide or very dilute bleach, but I'm seeing pretty much the same effect on each plant. And and I started thinking about the fact that, well, what I'm trying to do is get the foliage off before the, the dark spots develop to the point where they're shedding spores around the plant, up the plant. So at this point, I'm just grabbing a big fake terracotta pot in my little bench, and I'm just going plant to plant, and I'm just a a pruning fool trying to get it out of here as fast as possible without the dip because each plant has the same affliction. Um, When I'm walking by a plant and I see something I don't have my scissors, I'll snap off a branch. But you may have found that is when some of the leaves – 
some of the, the branches of leaves start getting diseased, they become hard to snap. And it's like something happens mm-hmm. to the vascular system and they, only, they almost become rubbery. So it's, it's easiest to snap a, print, a, a piece of uh, foliage off a plant when it's healthy. It starts becoming pretty tough and you can actually damage the plant if you start pushing at it too much and it's diseased. So I'm just doing the clipping. And then I am taking, and, and I will go down my five rows, you know, the 170 plants or so, and I'll have to empty that big terracotta bucket two or three times. And it is, it's going to the garbage. I am uh, not leaving that stuff around to sporulate. And the next time we get a breeze, it, you know, kind of blows them around. And then if the plants are damp, it will, it will uh, then attach. So, I'm just trying to do it as quickly as possible in the morning. Um, and as far as pruning the centers, if I was removing foliage, healthy foliage from the centers of largely healthy plants, that's when I would do a dip in between because I wouldn't want to spread. But it just so happens this year, the thinning that I'm doing is all foliage that's showing signs of a early blight or septoria. So again, I'm just removing it and, uh, and you notice that we haven't said the S word, spray. And so what I'm not, and I know there's all kinds of antifungals, whether they be chemical, whether they be organic. And because I've got so many plants this year, I am trying to give it a go to see what happens if just by using regular good discipline and guarding practices, I can get that progression of disease to slow to where the upper growth will always be looking pretty good. So this is a bit of a, an experiment. I'm doing the no treatment, all just physical removal process this year of my 170 plants, and I'll have a story to tell at the end of the season about how that goes. I will be anxious to hear that because, I, you know, it gets to be like July, and I am so tired and it is so hot out there that mm. I just give up. And yep. I know I shouldn't. I know that leaves spores around for to get on a fall crop or to get on next year's plants. And but it's just so hot. It's it so is. miserable. And, but, and you know, you mentioned the word spores and what's I meant we mentioned early blight before and that's a terrible disease, but it's it is the spores and it mm-hmm. it actually needs a living host. It doesn't winter over, but what happens is potatoes are almost invariably a source somewhere in the chain. So whether Farmers have chucked some diseased seed potatoes in a pile and they sprout, and then the foliage on those gets the blight, then you have a wind and it blows into your tomato patch. So I almost wonder if the, it would be interesting to know the amount of potatoes grown in the Pacific Northwest to see if there's a good correlation or potato-relative weeds that can also pick up the disease and, um, you know, tomato, potato, or eggplant are all related. But the but the original source never seems to be a tomato. It almost always seems, and it's just the genetic. There are so many genotypes of late blight. That's the way it has behaved to this point. And of course, I think when you mentioned the the problem we've had in the east, that came from a batch of plants at a big box store that came mm-hmm. in pre-infected with late blight, and then those got around and created havoc because then all, all people are growing these diseased tomatoes. They're sporulating. They're blowing into other gardens. So um, knock on wood. We've, I've not had to deal with it in my garden in Raleigh yet, but, you, you know, you garden long enough and you will, have, you will deal with every problem eventually. <laughs> so. yeah. and, and that's one of the reasons you mentioned potatoes, and, of course, that's one of the reasons why the, the experts recommend that you never plant um, a potato that 
you know, has just sprouted in your garden. That's right. Uh, or That's right. sprouted in your cabinet. But, of course, we both do that. We both have done that. And I remember the first time I actually saw a late blight, and it was from a, a Yukon gold potato. I think it was Yukon wow. gold. I've forgotten now. And as soon, I planted it, and as soon as it came up, pretty much, I said, uh-oh, we oh, have trouble. Dear. And, yeah, and of yeah. course, um, you when you are gardening in in the real dirt garden, it's really yeah. hard to get all those potatoes out of there. It is, um, and, and you know I think we talked about this last time. The gardener's tool belt of traditional garden raised bed containers and straw bales. It's um, you know we we know so much about all the different ways of gardening now. That added flexibility can really help because if you do have a possible issue with late blight on one side of the yard where you've got potatoes, that's where you can move your tomatoes or something else to another area of your yard in containers where at least you provided a good physical separation for them. It's, um, it's, it's amazing. I look at my yard and I just think of all the possibilities of where to stick stuff. And, yeah. and you know, pepper and peppers or an eggplant and tomatoes can be really attractive plants. So there's no reason they can't go in amongst flowers. And, uh, it's, I would take my whole lawn and turn it into a garden, but my neighbors would disown me. Well, and I'd get well. some nasty letters. So. <laughs> well, but now if you take a look at what Bree Arthur has been doing, and yes. she is also going to be, she's been, Joe's been over at her place um, taping there, and uh-huh. the stuff that she's doing, even growing grain in the front yard, that's nuts. Yes. And did you see that garlic harvest of hers? Yes. I couldn't believe it, and it just from like six inches at the very edge of her shrub beds in front of the house. That just blows me away. So I, I think that we are going to see more and more people growing vegetables in their front yard, but it's not going to be with a, like a tomato cage or no. something ugly like that. It's going to be just tucked in here and there where there is room for it. And, you know, I... I know we've talked before on this show about some of the people that have had to give up their gardens because they made raised beds, you know, and made them out of wood and planted them right in the front their front yard, and, and the neighbors think, oh, there goes the neighborhood. Now, frankly, yes. I wouldn't mind, but um, some people are weird like that. And there are regional differences. Uh, our daughter lives out in Seattle, and uh, just kind of a suburban neighborhood, and if you walk the streets you know there's stuff growing literally everywhere but they're but mm-hmm. they're not homeowners association type neighborhoods where there are covenants they're just they're just houses with front yards and people are getting really creative about it and it's that that weird tension between what's it going to do to the value of the house um you know does is it going to ruin the curb appeal it, but i guess it's just you have to you have to make an effort to do what you want to do, but make it fit with wherever you are. And there are always workarounds, and you know, hence the driveway. And uh, and I found that you know, if you sharing plants or seeds or produce with people, they may think your driveway garden is really cool instead of <laughs> instead of mm-hmm. something that's uh, you know that's that's a detriment. And and the more people garden, the more I think gardening will enhance the value of a neighborhood or a house because it's it's a place where there's concern for quality produce for 
It, I, I don't know. I, but then again, you know, I, I, do I have a bias about that? Probably. I'm an <laughs> avid gardener. Um, so, you know, well, that's probably I, all I, I think, can say I think you're that. right. And one of the things that I've always noticed among neighbors, neighborhoods that do garden, um, mostly smaller in-town neighborhoods, is there, you know, it's kind of like a block party. Um, yeah. When yeah. In, in, let's say, on a Friday evening when people are coming home from work and they go out there and, you know, hey, Joe, hey, Martha, how are you doing? How's your garden going? And, yeah. and then they're sharing produce, too. So it's, you know, it's, I think we need to get back to that mindset rather than protecting our turf um, yeah. with, yeah. with Bermuda grass lawn that they order you to water. That's what that, that's the ridiculousness here. People have to water their Bermuda grass lawns. And, of course, a Bermuda grass lawn can go dormant for weeks in the summer and not need sure. it. So I think, you know, I think maybe it'll change. I hope so. Bree has hope that millennials will, will make this all happen. So obviously yeah. our generation has not done a great job at it. But well, we we're hit and miss. We're, we're, we're hit and miss. We're all over the place. I, I think, um, yeah, but I, do, but I do think there's hope. And, uh, you know, just kind of the necessity of, of wanting to grow your own stuff, of, of rediscovering the flavors. And, uh, you know, we've, the fact that a lot of chefs are, have been captivated by heirlooms and they're actually putting on produce-themed dinners where people are gathering together to celebrate heirloom tomatoes. And, you know, and that puts chefs right in the bullseye of relevance of maintaining heirlooms and, and the people that attend the dinners because they're going to want to grow them themselves. So all of these things, I think, are, are what are going to contribute to the fact that Cherokee Purple and Cherokee Chocolate and Brandywine will be around another one or 200 years. But it, but it takes everybody in the chain to make it work, doesn't it? I think you're right. And as far as chefs are concerned, one of the things that, that a good chef always wants to do is bring flavor to the table. It's yeah. not just about the presentation because it can be as pretty as you want it to be um, and, and taste like cardboard. And right. so I think you're right that they do, they are pushing to keep some of these, um, get some of these varieties in. They will ask their their local grower, you know, hey, um, I had these yeah. tomatoes here. They were wonderful. Can you can you grow some for me for next year? And, and I and think you're right it, that that will help change it. Yeah. And there's another interesting piece of the puzzle is that eating seasonally to get the best quality. And I think... Mm-hmm. Americans in general have have put up with some pretty mediocre produce because we want to eat every crop 365 days a year. And some of us, you know, Sue and I are two of them, um, when the strawberries are done, we're done with them. When yep. the tomatoes come and go, we're done with them. But there's other wonderful things to eat and be creative about so you can keep that seasonal produce that's at its peak of excellence only a month or two tasting as good as possible and it's it's kind of nice to wait for something don't you think it, it is and i think we appreciate it more if we are eating what's coming fresh out of the garden rather than something that's being shipped in you know thousands of miles and i yeah. don't believe i can't believe it but we have to take another break so we will <laughs> do that and we'll get right back here talking more gardening right after this this is america's webradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you <laughs> 